Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Pope and Young Podcast. This is Jason Roundsville. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dylan, and also we have bow hunting legend jack frost with us today and i you know i could try to give jack an introduction i'm not sure that i could do it justice and frankly i'm not sure we have enough time on this program to do a proper introduction but some of the highlights um jack has taken all 29 north american big game species he was the first bow hunter to do the sheep slam in north america he has 50 different records in the Pope and Young book, just on and on and on. He has hunted all over the world. He is an ambassador for hunting and for bow hunting and for archery. He has been on a, a numerous boards and of directors. He has held numbers of positions pretty much all over the world. And uh, Jack, well, welcome to the program. We're really excited to have you here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I hope I have something to say that people will uh, learn something from or appreciate. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, I have to tell this story because it's a, it's, a, um, it's, it's a very memorable story for me. And we were at the ATA show. This was a couple of years ago, and it was my first one ever. And I had just started with Pope and Young. You were a, a, the vice president at the time. And you had come down to help us out at ATA and somebody walks up and, and they're like, is, is that Jack Frost? I was like, yeah, sure is. And they're like, is that the Jack Frost? I was like, yep, pretty sure. <laughs> and uh, it was just so neat 
to uh, to see the reactions from folks when they got to meet you. And it just it, it for me, it was very humbling. And I always felt appreciative of the opportunity that I had to spend some time with you. I, I'm usually the guy who does a lot of talking and I find myself when I'm in your company, I, I try to do a little more listening. So um, once again, thanks for being here today, Jack. We're super happy to have you. Well, it's a good time to be here. I'm in Nebraska right now and it's a sort of a mixture of rain and snow outside. So are you still getting some hunting in? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to get a little bit of hunting in, uh, mostly predators now. Okay. Now, is there deer season still going there, too, or is that pretty much There's, done? Uh, the regular buck season is closed here in Nebraska. There's still another 15 days of uh, archery doe season. Um, okay. I'll be doing that. Mostly I'm working on calling uh, coyotes, which are easy, and bobcats, which are not so easy. Yeah. And have you had some success with that? Uh, I've called some coyotes. I haven't shot any yet. Okay. Gotcha. Well, what, uh, you know, you're coyote hunting now. I know you've been bouncing around. You and I have talked a couple of times this year, and it seems like you're, you're typically, even, even among the COVID time, you're still putting some good miles on. What have been some of your highlights this year? Well, you know, thinking about the COVID, when I, I thought about just avoiding doing any traveling and then i figured at my age my tender young age i may not have too many more hunting seasons to go and so i'd better take advantage of them and uh so i hunted of course i my home is in alaska and i hunted um oh caribou moose and sheep uh all unsuccessfully um Although there's no such thing as a truly unsuccessful hunt. There's just hunts where you don't kill anything. Um, and I hunted uh, deer, Sitka deer down on Kodiak, and I got a nice buck down there um, in August this year. Um, in fact, I entered that in the Pope and Young Records as a velvet uh, Excellent. entry. I think it's my first velvet nice. entry ever. Um, well, and and they just adopted a non-typical non-typical Sitka blacktail category. So well, and they did that. And uh, I've for a long time I've sort of targeted non-typical Sitka blacktails, and I've actually entered two non-typical blacktails in Pope and Young record book uh, since they approved that. Um, both of those bucks were shot years ago one of them was shot in uh if i'm not mistaken 1990 and the other in uh 2004 that's that's been a little bit ago <laughs> yes it has yeah i've been hunting for a, a year or two yeah yeah i'm down here in oregon we've got blacktail country and yeah i've spent a lot of time out in the woods and i just don't run across very many non-typicals and it was interesting as I looked through our records, um, most years, the Columbia non-typical blacktail is the, the category that we get the fewest um, entries for. So I was always surprised by that. Be well, interesting prior to, see how prior to this year, the, um, there were no Sitka blacktail non-typical entries because Pope and Young did not have a category for them. Yeah. But, um, I guess with the new board and new uh, 
chairman of the records committee, the um, records committee and the board decided to make uh, non-typical Sitka blacktail another category. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to, to see how it all shakes out and how things, how things go. I hope we get a, a lot of folks that kind of, you know, like you say, you shot one in, in 1990. Hopefully people recognize that we're taking the right steps to include everybody and, and get those entries measured and sent in. I think it'll be interesting to see what ends up coming in that have been sitting on people's shelves for a long time that they didn't bother to entry because enter because they were non-typical. Yeah. Yeah, we we have we've had a few. I'm I'm not sure the number of non-typical Sitka entries, but the recent change with the velvet category has been very popular with a lot of people. We're getting a lot of folks that are engaging that hadn't hadn't really done it before just because we just didn't have a good spot for them and and now we do. So we're excited to see that. I guess that's the beauty of um, computer technology and being able to record things uh, without a ton of paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, uh, we're moving towards that direction. You know, we still, still take uh, handwritten entries and, but we're also moving to get the technology in place for the folks that want to do it online so that we can do that. We do accept email entries now. So we're trying to make it easier and, and more inviting for people to participate in the records program. We don't, we don't want to be the one holding them up from sending it in, I guess. So, Hey Jack, here, here's something of all the places. I mean, you've hunted all over the world. You've hunted North America and South America, Asia, Africa, is there anywhere left on your list that you haven't done yet? What's what's still on your bucket list? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, sort of my bucket list. Uh, I've always enjoyed hunting mountain species, but somewhere along the line, I I started counting up the number of different states in the United States that I had hunted in, or at least. Uh, not necessarily killed something in, but had a hunting license for. And um, anyway, I'm slowly chipping away at hunting different states. And, and uh, most of the states that I do not have are the eastern states, what I now consider the really trophy states, places like Connecticut and Rhode Island that um, it's just hard to find a place to hunt. Uh, and so anyway, I'm going to work at chipping away on those things. Um, I think there's 13 states that I've never hunted in, although it's not necessarily bow hunted in every one of those states. For example, I hunted quail in Georgia a long, long time ago. So that's my account in Georgia. Um, but anyway, I've hunted most of the states west of the Mississippi river and, uh, and a lot of the states east as well. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I, I never miss a chance to hunt Pennsylvania. As far as international hunting, um, the I've pretty much gotten everything done that I'd like to do internationally. I've been to Africa three times or six times, and um, a long, long time ago, probably thirty years ago, I had dreams of maybe harvesting an elephant with a bow. 
Um, but now I can't even pull a bow that I would consider adequate to, to take for an elephant. So I'm not trying that anymore. Um, and I've found that I enjoy hunting countries uh, where my guide and person with me in the field is, is fluent in English. And so if I do much more international hunting, it would probably be to Australia or New Zealand. Uh, they have a multitude of fun hunts down there. And New Zealand has some great mountain hunting um, for tar and chamois. Um, and the other, what, the country that I've been to several times that I would love to go back to uh, is Mongolia. But the only animal that I need there is would be at a, an Altai Argali, and they're way too expensive for me to go hunt. Uh, so I'm not planning on going back there. But I've been to Mongolia twice and uh, taken two ibex there and one sheep, and truly enjoyed my hunts over there. It's a it's a amazing place with uh, very gracious people and. Um, had a good time over there. Very nice. Now, have you hunted Australia before? I have hunted Australia. I, I hunted uh, for banting, which is which I did not get, and also water buffalo, which I killed a water buffalo down there. Okay. Yeah, it was neat. We had uh, Ben Solaris on a couple weeks ago, who uh, he heads up a. It's a it's a Pope and young like organization with a record system for Australia and just had a great conversation with him. It was a lot of fun for us to, to hear about how they do things down under that. Uh, certainly have some bow hunters down there. Yeah. That's turned me, that's turned me and Jason both on to having Australia on our bucket list for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it wasn't on there before, but after talking to Ben, it is now. Well, so, the, the hunts that I've done, and I've just been to Australia hunting once and truly enjoyed the hunt. Um, and I've been to New Zealand twice. And uh, Australia and New Zealand are both places that I would certainly go back to. Nice. What's what's your favorite of, of all the places that you've ever been? What's the one that, that you treasure the most? What's the experience or the location or, or even the trophy that's kind of your your top one, the one that you're the most proud of? Yeah, that's a, there's several different answers to what you perceived as one question. I, you know, I kind of, <clears throat> I, I kind of got a little off track there. So what, let's start with what's your favorite, what's the trophy that you're the most proud of, Jack? I think the trophy that I'm most proud of is my Marco Polo sheep. Um, I took it in Tajikistan and it was shot at, at about 17,000 feet above sea level. Wow. Um, I know for sure that where it fell to ended up being 16,600 feet above sea level, according to my GPS. And it was um, probably the most physically uh, and emotionally challenging hunts for me to go on. I went over there twice, the first time unsuccessfully. Um, and it's it's a long, long way to go. You're hunting at high altitude. There's all sorts of uh, physical challenges, and not just the altitude, but um, jet lag, motion sickness, altitude sickness, 
traveler's diarrhea, you name it. <laughs> I pretty much had it and had to overcome it. And uh, then the the Marco Polo sheep is such a incredible animal living where they do and and they've been pursued for you know centuries by uh, lots of hunters of all different sorts and then most recently the russian military occupied a lot of tajikistan and they hunted marco polo sheep with their automatic weapons and the sheep are truly wild and live high and survive by running away the first glimpse they get at a man and uh just a very, very challenging hunt for a very, very beautiful animal. Wow. Okay. And then how about your favorite of all the locations that you've been to? What's your favorite place to be? Well, I'd, I'd sort of like to give two answers to that. I grew up in Pennsylvania, north central Pennsylvania, hunting white-tailed deer. And I have not missed a Pennsylvania white-tailed deer season since I was old enough to legally hunt there. And I still go back, even though I live in Alaska, I go back and hunt Pennsylvania for whitetails every year. And so that has a place that's near and dear to my heart and kind of a shout out to all the guys that are living in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or, or whatever and saying, oh, geez, you know, if we could only go out west and hunt, um, Right. There's there's some spectacular hunting right there in the east for deer. Deer is good a animal to um, chase as anything else. And then in terms of probably my favorite hunt, it's actually hunting for Sitka blacktail deer on specifically on Kodiak Island in Alaska. And there's several reasons I like doing that. Uh, one is that the season opens the 1st of August, and you have long daylight hours in August. Um, the deer, the hunting is mostly spot and stalk. There's The deer don't move predictably enough to really uh, ever try to do a stand hunt for them. Um, you see a lot of deer. You see there's the population varies quite a bit from year to year but there's some some days that i will actually see close to 100 deer and maybe 25 or 30 bucks um and it's a matter of seeing a lot of game and then getting to pick out what's the best you can find for that day and then going after it um in addition, hunting on Kodiak, there's a, there's a certain wildness about it and a certain anxiety that comes with hunting and camping right around Kodiak brown bears. Um, and you have to pay attention and follow a few fairly simple rules. But I find that in the summertime, in August and September, the bears are pretty much feeding on salmon. And so they don't pay much attention to deer and deer hunters. Um, I like to tell people the bears don't start eating deer hunters until the 1st of October. And that's <laughs> why I like to go in August. But there's two times to hunt Sitka deer really for bow hunters. The one time is in the summer. And that's more of a do-it-yourself drop-off 
hunt um, where you have to camp out, but at least you have long daylight hours and relatively warm temperatures. And then the other time is November when the deer are in the rut. And those hunts are better taken uh, from a fixed base, either a lodge that uh, drives you out with a boat every day to hunt or, or from a boat-based hunt. There's several different outfits that run boat-based hunts down there in November, and they're very popular. Uh, but you only have about half the number of daylight hours to hunt. It's colder, the weather can be worse. Um, on the other hand, the deer are in the rut and they are truly stupid. The bucks. Yeah. You know, I've, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the Sitka blacktails because I've had a number of people tell me that one of their most fun hunts every year, kind of the two answers I hear the most for that are a lot of people like the Sitka blacktail. And there is a, a big group of folks out there that really enjoy hunting the, the coos deer. And so those are some of the ones that, that I don't know if that's surprising to everybody, but those were kind of surprising to me that, that they would be at the top of people's list. I've spent a lot of time hunting coos deer. Um, and the, what I like about it is it gives you an excuse to go to Arizona in January, which coming from Alaska, or even if you were coming from Montana or Nebraska, <laughs> uh, Arizona is a, a pleasant place to be in January. Yeah. Yeah, you get a nice what, 30, 40 degree bump there pretty quick. And a lot of people go to Mexico to hunt coos deer as well. Um, I've hunted them there just once. Uh, no, I guess twice. Um, but I just like the little bit less hassle involved with Arizona. Okay. Now You don't have border crossings to deal with and you don't have to worry about speaking another language. Yeah. Now you mentioned bears on Kodiak. Have you, have you had some run-ins with bears while you were deer hunting? Oh, I've had some, um, I guess nothing too serious over the years. I, I don't know, honestly, how many Sitka deer I've taken over the years, probably, uh, in the neighborhood of 60, I would think. Anyway, um, the, in that period of time, I've lost two deer, two bears. Um, both of them, the uh, bear got to the deer before I did. Um, in in one case, I was watching a deer that was um, hit a little farther back than I like to hit him. And it went a couple hundred yards and laid down. And I was just watching it to see how quickly it would expire. And a bear came up and, and took it. And on another instance, I shot a deer and was following a good blood trail and a bear came in behind me following the same blood trail. And I just stepped aside and let the bear go on by. And one of those hunts was a November hunt. Uh, the other was a summertime hunt. But probably the most exciting episode I had with a bear was I had killed a buck and about three days after I killed the buck, I killed it. It was in a patch of alders, and, a, and I dragged it out of the alders downhill before I, I got it out in an open field before I even field-dressed it. And um, 
there on Kodiak, we pretty much uh, butcher the deer, bone them out, and put them in a backpack and walk away with them. We don't drag them because otherwise the bears would just follow the drag marks back to wherever you were. Um, but anyway, so I'd, I'd left a gut pile and the bones and hide and stuff um, from this deer, that I, the buck that I'd killed. And I went back about three days later. I, I think I just was curious if the bears had cleaned up the gut pile and, and also thought maybe I'd find a fox uh, feeding on the gut pile. And as I got walking up to it, it was on, in open tundra country. And as I was walking towards it, I was maybe, oh, 40 yards from where I thought the guts should be. And I thought I should have been able to see them, but I couldn't. And I was just sort of taking my time walking towards them. And I was maybe 60 yards from the alders that I had dragged the deer out of originally. And all of a sudden, a sow, brown bear, and three cubs, three two-year-old cubs. So they were almost as big as she was. But four bears came charging out of the alders right at me. And um, the I sort of knew that... Um, running was not going to be a good option. And so I just stood my ground. I uh, do carry a pistol. And I grabbed my pistol and tried to make myself look big and pointed my pistol at the bears. And and um, they came maybe 20, 30 yards out of the alders. And they were about still maybe 30 to 40 yards from me. And they all stopped as though to say, oh, gosh, there's a man, what do we do now? And I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, they're stopped. I wonder if I should run now or shoot now or what I should do. <laughs> so I decided to try to defuse the situation by backing up. And so I took a step backwards, still holding the pistol in both hands and having it pointed at the bears and, and, um, took another step backwards and took another step backwards. And all of a sudden I tripped and fell down. Oh no. And, uh, <clears throat> as I rolled around, I bounced back up again, expecting the bears to be on top of me. And instead they all four of them had turned tail and they were running like mad. So I'm sure that <laughs> they thought, Oh, cripes, you know, there's a man, what are we going to do? Boy. Oh, there he fell down. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Oh, that's so, yeah, and I'm sure time slowed down. So on your way to the ground, you're probably thinking they're they're on their way to me. Yep, I, oh, I was my. sure I was dead at the time. So okay. um, people That's... always want to know what I carry for a pistol for bear protection, and I carry a Glock 10 millimeter. And a lot of people say, you know, that's not a big enough gun, you know, to really hurt a charging brown bear or stop him, and and they talk about having a 44 Magnum or a 454 Kisool or something like that. But the Glock is not very heavy and it holds 15 bullets. So I figure that if I shoot 13 or 14 times at the bear and the bear chews me up, I still have one bullet left to put myself out of my misery. So yeah, same that's why I prefer the Glock. Huh? Yeah. It's, I, you know, being in the around guns my whole life, there's that whole, you know, stopping power versus capacity. And, you know, the, the only bullet that you have to judge the stopping power on is the one that you actually hit with. 
And so that's why a lot of times I'll shoot a nine or a 40 because you get 15 or 17 instead of five or six. So, you know, I actually, I actually listened to a podcast one time and I don't know if you guys saw the video, but it was that guy that got attacked by the bears twice and walked out to his truck and drove to the hospital or whatever. And, and he was on with the, the, I don't know, the guys who run classes for, for bear protection. And uh, they actually, at the end of this episode, concluded that a 10 millimeter is the best gun to carry uh, for bear protection. Well, that's worth knowing. I had never seen that video, but, uh, and I can't shoot it worth a darn. I'm not a, I don't like loud noises, which is probably why I'm more of a bow hunter than a rifle hunter. But um, I don't practice much with the Glock. I shoot it a few times a year, um, make sure bullets are coming out the front end and remind myself that it does not have a very forgiving trigger pull. Yeah. You don't want to be the first time you've shot it in two years to be when the bear's bearing down on you. That's correct. Yeah. That's 10 millimeter gets a lot of good press because it's basically just a souped up 40 cal. I, I think the argument is typically going with a bigger caliber, but I'm a proponent. If you can get a, a high powered 40 with 15 rounds, that's, that's pretty good. Well, I've never had to shoot it at a bear, so I don't know if it would work or not. The, I think the biggest thing in bear encounters um, is to be confident and um, not let the bear surprise you. Uh, that's a, a real problem. If, if for some reason you walk in on a bear that's on a kill and he's 10 yards or less away when he decides to charge. I, I, I don't think it matters what you're carrying at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Those are big creatures. I don't, I think a lot of people don't realize exactly how big they are until you see one in person right up close. Yeah. So now have you, uh, have you been, well, obviously you've taken bears. You've taken all, all four species of bears. What's your favorite one to hunt? Oh, that's, uh, that is a very difficult question for me to decide. I, um, I enjoy spot and stalk hunting. And so, uh, which you can do with black bears as well as brown bears and grizzly bears. Um, the, certainly the brown bears and grizzly bears, there's a whole lot more adrenaline associated with it. With black bears, if you're hunting them on blueberries or on grassy hillsides in the springtime, uh, you see a lot more bears and have a lot more opportunity to shoot a bear. I think I've shot 18 black bears and only three brown bears and just one grizzly bear with my bow. And, you know, so obviously black bears are more easily available and, and easier to hunt. Um, you can eat them. I, I don't... I've never eaten an entire black bear, but I've, I normally save the hindquarters and, and back straps from them. And I've not eaten any of my brown bears or grizzly bears. Uh, I have eaten parts of, of the polar bears that I've killed. Uh, and that was only because the, <clears throat> the uh, Inuit guides that I was hunting with took some of it back to the villages and their wives cooked it up, made bear paw soup and stuff like that. And it was actually pretty good. Huh. So what is your favorite wild game? Uh, I truly believe my favorite wild game is the Sitka black-tailed deer 
that I shoot in the summertime when they're still in velvet. Um, and I might expand that to any of the antlered animals that are in velvet, uh, moose, caribou. Caribou are my least favorite of the venison animals, but moose in velvet, elk in velvet, and deer in velvet are, there's just an incredible difference between the taste of a deer that's still in velvet and once he's out of velvet. Okay. Yeah. It's, I've, um, have you had, how about cougar? Have you tried cougar? I have. And, and, um, I liked it. I do, but I don't recall it. I haven't had it often enough to say that it's a, Oh man, cougar is my favorite meat. It's I, I can't say that, but I've eaten cougar. Okay. Yeah. I've heard a couple of people say that, that of all of them, cougar was their favorite. So, and a lot of people say that wild sheep are their favorite, and um, it's it is also very good. So I I don't want to knock that, but um, my the the one that I go hunting for, and that my wife will tell me that we're getting low on it in the freezer, um, is the Sitka blacktail and velvet. Nice, nice. I think my favorite all time. And I'm not sure if it was just the meat or if it was the experience and, you know, cooking on a wood fire and the whole nine yards. But we had some tenderloins out of a, uh, out of an Eland that were just out of this world. Amazing. Yeah, actually another, um, oh, I'm sorry. I started this answer. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm having a senior moment here. Um, um, nil guy. The, the nil guy down in Texas okay. are like a totally different kind of game meat. Uh, they, and they are delicious. So anybody that has a chance to hunt nil guy in Texas would uh, definitely save the meat because it's very, very good. Nice. Who'd you hunt with down there, Jack? Oh, I hunted um, with an outfit called Four Arrows. Uh, Wayne Peoples was the principle in it they're not they had a about a ten thousand acre lease on the king ranch um and that's where i've hunted and then one time a, there was a um i think it was about the first year that i was on the pope and young board of directors which would have been about 2004 um the board of directors had a uh combination nil guy javelina hog hunt um, on a ranch in Texas. Uh, I think it might've been the Kennedy ranch and, uh, that was a lot of fun too. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of neat opportunities, you know, and I think, you know, with, with the Texas hunting, the kind of the exotics like that, it's, um, even though it's a high fence, there's some areas down there that you wouldn't know you're in a fence because you, you can't walk across it in a day. Correct. Yeah. And there's, uh, there are areas, there's a lot of, uh, areas down there that have, um, exotic animals that basically have gone, gone totally wild. They're not high fence at all. Um, Audad in West Texas are running around in the mountains out there. Um, and then Nilgai, uh, I think the Nilgai, I'm not, uh, I don't really consider myself 
highly knowledgeable about Texas. I've been there, oh, probably eight times or so, but um, it's not like I've lived there and hunted all over the state. Um, I think the Nilgai are pretty much limited to the southern part of Texas, um, but a lot of them are wild. They're not, they're not in high fence areas. Yeah, that's uh, the other one that you hear about, and I didn't even realize was there, was the New Mexico Oryx. They yes. have a, a huntable population down there that's free roam. Yeah. So what's what's your next animal that you're looking forward to? What's the hunt that you've got coming up that you just can't wait to, to get going on? <laughs> well, you're picking a bad time of the year, but my my next hunt that I can't wait to get on is – to get out this evening here in Nebraska and nice. and uh, try and shoot an ordinary doe whitetail. And then once it gets dark, I'll turn on a predator call and see if I can get a bobcat or a coyote. Okay. The best, the best hunt, Jason, is the one that's coming up next, my friend. I, you know, <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. It's, no, I, I, <clears throat> you know, Jason, I, I love that answer because, to hear somebody who's got to hunt all over the world and, and different countries, different states, you know, to say a whitetail doe gets me just as excited as anything like that, that as a primarily, as a whitetail hunter myself, I'm like, yeah, it does. You know, like that's, that's what my bread and butter is. And so I love hearing guys that get to hunt all over the world say, Hey, whitetail doe is just as good as anything. Yeah. Uh, just one more comment about the whitetail does. Um, if you, and I try hard to uh, only shoot a mature, older doe, and so because first part of the reason is I don't want to shoot a button buck, or this time of year I don't want to shoot a, a mature buck that's already shed its antlers. And so you got to study its head as it's coming in and its body, and, and uh, you want to shoot a, a big, long-faced, doe and and it's better if she's got one or two uh yearlings with her so that you can see that she's clearly bigger and if you think it's easy to get a draw on the big old doe um man it it is not easy at all they are paying attention all the time did you know jack that the qdma put out a study and said that that whitetail genetics are passed on through the doe. So you hear guys say, well, I mean, I want him to pass on his genetics. When in all reality, it's the doe that that just 90% of the genetics of, of how big a buck will be comes from the mom. I've certainly heard that. And of course, the problem is you can't, you can't tell what uh, right. <laughs> mom might yeah. be passing on. That's the problem. Yeah, it's. I, I think there's so much out there, you know, when you bring into genetics and and I think there's some areas that are are clearly, you know, I look at where I've hunted in Oregon and and for mule deer, there's just I don't think the genes are there to get those great big bucks like you find some some other places. And, and so there's definitely something to be said about it. But there's you know the feed, the the winter. It, there, there's so many combinations that go into that. That's certainly true. And so what, did you have any hunts with, with COVID going on this year? Did you have anything canceled that you had to reschedule? Well, um, early in the year, I, I canceled all of my spring turkey hunts. 
I did. I was the guest speaker at the Indiana Bow Hunters Association on, I think it was the 13th of um, March. And I expected that they were going to cancel that, but they didn't. And they had bought me an airline ticket. So I flew down there and was their guest speaker. And then, um, as you're well aware, we had, we canceled our, um, Virginia conference in Virginia. And, and I canceled, I had uh, spring Turkey hunting scheduled for Pennsylvania and Nebraska. And I canceled both of those. But then in Alaska, I didn't really cancel any of my hunts this year because of, of COVID. Uh, and I thought long and hard about whether to come down. I was scheduled to come to Nebraska uh, latter part of October. And then I've got a farm in Nebraska. And uh, so I like to get down here. Um and then I've got a truck here as well, and I always drive down to Kansas or Iowa, depending on where I've got a tag, and try to look for a big buck. And um, I thought long and hard about whether to take the risk of flying, and I figured, you know, I'm I'm just going to mask up, wash my hands, and try and stay as far from other folks as I can, but I'm going to go because uh, as i mentioned earlier at my age there's more hunting seasons behind me than there are ahead of me um and so i didn't want to miss one just sitting at home so uh absolutely carpe diem and then the other thing is i was going to go to arizona this month um and i just decided i got stuff here in nebraska that i can keep hunting i was already here for the christmas holidays and and i'm just going to stay here Gotcha. And so any, uh, what's your next overseas adventure? At this point, I have zero overseas adventures planned. Okay. Well, you know what? Just, just hang on to that because here about mid April, I know of a place that's got a a few overseas adventures readily available for bow hunters. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We have a pretty good lineup for our auction here coming up in Reno. So you know, there's getting to be more and more overseas places available for bow hunters. And uh, Russia, for example, has been closed to bow hunting forever. And they just opened up, I understand. I don't know any bow hunters that have actually been there yet. But um, that's an intriguing thought to go to Russia. They've got a lot of species. It's a huge country, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, we actually talked to a couple of, of those outfitters at the the uh, Dallas Safari Club show. And, you know, they were excited about the opportunity, but I don't think they were really set up yet to accommodate the bow hunter. They're thinking about it and they're working on it, but I just don't think they were quite, quite ready to go yet. I'm sure they will be soon. That's probably true. Yeah. You know, Jack, here's a question that we like to ask all of our guests. And this one, especially with your having traveled literally all over the entire world to hunt, what is something that you take with you on a hunt, kind of a non-traditional item that that might be a little bit unique? Oh, I might have to think about that for a minute. One thing about the international hunts, though, that I do that perhaps is unique, I always pack essentially two of everything. In other words, two bows, two sets of arrows, two range finders, 
you, you know, two sets of hiking boots. And, um, and then I pack them in separate bags. So I take two bags, each of which I could hunt out of and enjoy. And the thing about hunting overseas is there's not an archery store right next door. So if you, um, Oh, cut a bowstring with an arrow or something. There's no way to put a new bowstring on a compound bow. And um, that's easy, I guess yeah. I should say. Um, and and so if you have two of everything, um, then if if something happens to one piece of equipment, you've got a you've got a spare. And I had one hunt. Um, that was sort of an epic deal. Uh, I was going to Azerbaijan to hunt for Tur, T-U-R. And I was meeting my good friend, Tom Hoffman in New York City. So I flew from Anchorage, Alaska to New York City on Delta. And then it, we had about a six hour layover and I was meeting Tom and at JFK airport in New York. And we were going on on Turkish airlines to Istanbul and eventually Baku, Azerbaijan. When I got to New York, only one of my two bags showed up. And the people with Delta said, oh, it's no problem. Your bag is on the next plane. It'll be in here. Still plenty of time for you to get on the Turkish Airlines flight. And we waited around and the bag didn't show up. And then we told, so Delta, of course, said, well, tell us where you live and we'll, we'll see that the bag gets to you. Right. And I said, Dad, you don't understand. I'm going to Azerbaijan. I'm going to be in the mountains. And, and they said, well, what's your itinerary? So I gave them my itinerary. And they said, oh, no problem. We've got a flight from New York to Madrid that goes then from Madrid to Istanbul before your flight from Istanbul leaves to go to Azerbaijan. And we'll just, you know, check your bag on through to there. So I get to Istanbul and we had a 12 hour layover in Istanbul and my bag didn't show up. And so we flew on to Azerbaijan and I did have one bag with a bow and arrows and everything I needed. Right. And we get to Azerbaijan and my other bag is not there. And we rode for about six hours in a van. And then we got on horses. We spent the night and then we got on horses and rode about four to five hours with multiple river crossings high up into the wilderness mountains. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I just, was making do with what I had. Right. And on the third day of the hunt, the mayor of the local little village showed up with my second bag. No kidding. And I cannot tell you how amazed I was to see that. But this guy was the chief or the mayor or something of, of this little village. And somehow um, they had... Delta had connected with um, Turkish Airways and they got my bag to uh, Baku, Azerbaijan, and then they had to ride it 
six hours in a van on the highway and then load it on a horse and ride it up into the mountains. And there it was. So well, that well, doesn't always work out that way. But You know, I've heard a lot of last lost baggage stories. That's by far the most successful <clears throat> lost baggage story I've ever heard. Well, I, so. to me, it's the most amazing one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that's nice to know that, you know, even if it hadn't shown up, you had everything you needed. Yeah. And so yeah. that's my that's my bit of advice for people that are traveling internationally is take two of everything, pack two identical, basically identical bags, because one of them might not show up. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Well, well, Jack, I, I know just from having spent some time around you, I know you've got literally hundreds and, and hundreds of stories. But what is uh, what's one one piece of wisdom that you've seen over the years that you'd like to, to send on to our listeners. One piece of wisdom. Uh, I think it's critically important to know where you hit an animal. And the reason that's critically important is for how you follow up after you've actually hit an animal with, with a bow and arrow. Um, and this is something I've, I've had articles published about as well as I teach uh, I'm a bow hunter ed instructor and um, but but based on how an arrow kills an animal if you get a double lung hit or hit them in the heart doesn't matter whether you wait half an hour or start tracking right away you're going to come to the dead animal in 200 yards on the other hand if you shoot them and hit them in the guts um you should not follow up because usually a gut shot animal will lay down within a hundred or 200 yards of where it's hit. And usually if you let it go overnight or um, if you shoot it early in the morning, let it go for six, seven hours before you start tracking it, usually it will either be dead or incapacitated by the time you get to it. Um, and I've had people say, well, what about if it's raining or snowing or, or what if you're worried about coyotes or, you know, there's a lot of excuses for, oh, I got to follow up right now. But if you have a gut shot animal and you jump it, if it, if it lays down within 100 yards of where you hit it and you jump it, when you jump it, it may go half a mile or two miles. And if it's raining or snowing or if there's coyotes in the area, um, your chances of finding it in a two mile radius tomorrow are a lot less than they are of finding it in a hundred yard radius tomorrow. If you let it lay, um, another scenario is if you hit an animal with an arrow and it collapses instantly, you've hit it in the spine and you should immediately shoot it again. Do not climb down out of your tree stand, but get another arrow out. You hit it once from that range, shoot it again. Because more than half of the animals that collapse instantly when you hit them in the spine with an arrow will have a quick, um, like hitting your funny bone, instant transient paralysis, and then they'll jump up and run away. And often with your arrow sticking out of their back. Um, and so as a rule of thumb, if, if you're ever, and this particularly applies to black bears on baits or white-tailed deer out of a tree stand, because you're already close, you hit it and it 
collapses like it was shot with a rifle, shoot it again. That's gotcha. very important. And then the final thing, everybody knows that arrows kill by cutting arteries and blood vessels and the animals bleed to death. And so if you hit an animal outside of a body cavity, you hit it on the shoulder, you hit it on the rump, and I'm not saying that you should ever shoot for those places, but it happens. You hit it in the neck, in the meat of the neck, or the shoulder, or the rump, and sometimes it's because the animal jumped and moved when you shot. Sometimes it's just because you were excited and made a bad shot, but for whatever reason, if you're sure that you've hit it just a meat hit, not into a body cavity, my advice is to follow it immediately. Get on it, as, chase it. If you can see it, which often we can in Alaska in open tundra terrain, follow it visually. And then as soon as you can no longer follow it visually, take up the blood trail and push the blood trail hard. Because what happens with a superficial or a meat hit, there's lots of blood vessels in, the, in meat and if you keep an animal moving, it will continue to bleed. And the standard answer on the quizzes is that an animal has to lose 30% of its blood volume to go into shock and die from the, from the wound. But if it loses 20% of its blood volume over 15 minutes, it may start getting woozy and making bad decisions. And if you can keep it moving, uh, you have a lot better chance of getting it. Many times a bow hunter will hit an animal and they hit it in the rump or over the top of the back or in the shoulder without getting penetration of a body cavity. And they wait a half hour or an hour and then they take up what starts out to be a very good blood trail. They follow the very good blood trail for about 100 or 150 yards, no trouble at all following the blood trail. And then they come to a place where there's a whole puddle of blood because the animal stopped and stood there and it bled down maybe 15% of its blood volume and its blood pressure went down. It calmed down from the being startled and the adrenaline of being shot at and hit. And then it walks away and it quits bleeding. And in most cases that animal will live. Um, but if you get on it and push it and never give it a chance to relax, there's a good chance that it will start making mistakes and a good chance it'll keep bleeding and you can keep following it. Gotcha. So anyway, that's, um, uh, that's something I feel pretty strongly about. I've written about it and taught it to other people. Excellent. So, so pay close attention to where you hit that animal. It's very important. And okay. it, not only is it very important where you hit an animal, but what you do in the first 30 seconds or minute after you hit it can make a difference there. Are, and I'm not saying it's all of them. Most of the animals that we kill with a bow and arrow are quick, clean, for sure kills. And so what I'm talking about is, is I don't know what it, it might be. It's certainly less than 10% of the animals that you hit, but, but perhaps that there's 10% that otherwise are lost that I think you could bring to your possession if you follow it up in the proper fashion. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we may have to do another episode just on that, Jack. <laughs> so we, uh, we sure appreciate you spending some time with us today. I was really excited to have you on. Um, it's always a pleasure to, 
to visit with you and, and hear some of the stories from around the globe. And, and so thank you very much for joining us today. Well, happy to do it.